Hey, it's Mark Shifley here. You're listening to the Jet Centric Podcast. Hey there, Winnipeg Jets fans. Welcome back to the Jet Centric Podcast. My name is AJ, one of your hosts, and this is episode 89. I always like to associate the episode number with an NHL player, past or present, and uh, I believe Alexander Mogilny wore number 89. Somebody could fact check that if you like, but I think he wore number 89 when he scored 76 goals, the same year that Solani scored 76 in his uh, rookie season. So there you go, the Alexander Mogilny episode. Um, anyhow, a couple things to get to this episode. I'll talk about it just uh, briefly here and then mention some of the other stuff that's going on. Uh, I do an interview with Jay Fresh. Um, I won't tell you his Twitter handle. You'll see all that uh, or you'll hear it all in the episode. Um, it sort of has an analytical bent, but actually not too much. It's pretty like plain talk. And uh, yeah, he's got some, some great stuff to, to add. I'm going to go back and listen to it again just because I really enjoyed our chat together. It was supposed to be a combined episode. Uh, that was going to be like four, you know, 15 to 20 minute parters with uh, uh, Scott Billick and Murat Atesh of The Athletic and Ken Weeb. But um, Scott, I'm going to do a separate uh, coming up. Murat, we're going to leave it for the off season because the topic is we're going to do a deep dive into the, the CBA. So it's not really that topical right now with the hockey about to start. And Ken Weeb, we might touch base with them kind of while the series is going on. So instead, we're going to do them as basically four separate episodes instead of trying to cram them into one, which I thought would be a fun idea. But uh, it just didn't work out that way. So you can expect Weeb and Billick sooner than later. And uh, then you'll expect uh, some more Murat uh, later after the Jets are done. Maybe they're hoist a cup. We'll see. So uh, those are some other ones to look forward to. Also, a uh, friend of the show, uh, Brady, is going to be guest hosting, uh, doing an interview with Morris Lukwich from uh, the WHA Day. So he's going to chat with um, him and I, I believe the early uh, Jets in the NHL too. I should uh, do a little history research, but I'm, I think I'm going to find that all out. I, I'm maybe too young for the WHA days to, to remember it all. But um, yeah, so that's coming up probably this week, actually. I think they're recording, so we'll see if we get the audio uh, in time, something else to, to check out. Plus, uh, some other people, Chris and Ryan and maybe Kishore and some other folks are gonna be uh, doing some previews of the, or a preview of the Calgary series. And then we're gonna try and have game recaps slash previews for the next game uh, as we go along here. So pretty much after and before every game, there'll be something else to listen to, whether it's a preview recaps episode, as well as uh, some interviews sprinkled in there. Um, We were also supposed to have Dale Howard Chuck on, but if you haven't heard, um, his uh, cancer has come back. Um, He was supposed to be doing a golf tournament here July 22nd. That's obviously been, cancelled. Um, I know he was supposed to do another one out in Ontario somewhere, so I, I believe that one's in September. It's likely not happening, so I've talked with his agent, and we were going to do something in this in early July, but obviously, um, you know, uh, cancer has uh, put that on hold, which uh, I don't want to say that in a selfish way. Obviously, our thoughts go out to him and his family. That's uh, really, really disappointing that it came back, but um, that was something that's going to happen, but I think that... Uh, you know, may have to wait for a later day. Hopefully he uh, gets better. So that's something to maybe uh, happen in the future as far as an episode, but that's uh, the least of our concerns, obviously, thinking about him. So um, with that said, kind of a sad note, let's get into the episode. Hope you enjoy it. Jay Fresh was really, really great. And uh, yeah, I like the, the stuff that he shared and I think you will too. So it's about uh, 40 minutes long and that's it. Let's go. Oh, and also uh, one last thing, check out our last episode. Chris did a great interview with Sean Burke, uh, goaltender, uh, extraordinaire in the 90s and 
uh, 2000s, um, had a storied career, and now he's a scout with uh, with Montreal. So uh, check that out too. That was our last episode. Make sure you check back often because we're hoping to put out lots of stuff. So that's it. Okay, long intro. Let's go. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you, Jack, for taking the time to uh, chat with me for a little bit and answer a couple of questions. Uh, before we kind of get into it, maybe I'll give you an opportunity just to tell our listeners uh, who you are. And uh, at the end, you can uh, mention where they could find all your work, too. Yeah. Uh, my name is Jack. I go by Jay Fresh more often for some reason. It's a name I picked months ago and then am now forced to stick with. Uh, my Twitter handle is at JFreshHockey. You might have seen some stuff I've posted during this quarantine about hockey analytics there's some hockey visualizations i think is, is a big thing that i've been working on especially and more recently kind of digging into some articles maybe breaking down certain players and trying to take a look where some kind of gaps between the eye test and the analytics might come into play uh you can find those on my Substack, which is under the same name jfresh uh also making as i said those visualizations which are uh, available to patrons, but really just kind of trying to give a sense and kind of bridge the gap between people who might be interested in hockey and, and might have some interest in analytics but aren't too stat savvy. You know, I don't come from a super hard stats background myself, so really kind of about trying to make this whole different side of the game a little bit more accessible to people. Well, I, I will say, first of all, that I really enjoy the stuff that you've done. I think that you have a good mix of, of making it palatable for people that that don't come from that background as well as adding some some humor in there so i've definitely enjoyed finding your uh, your twitter account over the last uh, year or so and uh, some of the visualizations are helpful for people like me that maybe uh, don't get into the weeds too much so you, you help make it a little more understandable for those of us so uh, i like it and i, I like the mix so um anyhow let's uh, get to a couple questions the first one i have uh, we're going to get to some more jet specific things but i'm going to start off with um, one thing that I always like to do for myself and for people when we talk about hockey is how fans can watch the game a little bit better and see exactly what make, makes a player good or bad. We hear, you know, uh, talking heads say something about a player. We see a, co- a coach say something, you know, that doesn't seem to line up and then analytics uh, seem to say something different. So what are some of the things that you look for or that um, the main data points uh, that drive analytics um I guess speak to that, that that we can really know what makes a player good or bad. Like why, what what actual plays on the ice and and whatnot uh, should should we be looking for? That's going to give us a better indication of what players are actually doing and and how they're impacting the game. Yeah, so I've I've done a lot of thinking on this uh, in the past couple of months and, and a lot of writing on it as well because there have been players who I've uh, written about and kind of taken really deep looks at who maybe have you know either their their reputation among like mainstream hockey fans is, is pretty high, but the analytics don't quite match up. Or in some cases, the other way around, where a player won't have very much notoriety around the league, but if you look at their analytical profile, you think that they were a superstar. Uh, and I think one thing that I that keeps hitting me over and over again is that you know it's very, very rare that the eye test and the analytics disagree, like strictly speaking, because both of them are based on things that are actually happening on the ice. In the case of the eye test, obviously... You know, we're watching games, we're seeing things that are happening, we're seeing skill sets, we're seeing players doing stuff. You know, this is obviously based on what's going on in the ice. But the analytics are measurements of what's going on in the ice as well. And I think that it's important for some people who might find themselves a little bit alienated by kind of the more like numbers, math, spreadsheet aspect of it, to remember that what these stats are really doing is trying to describe, you know, in a somewhat objective way, what's actually going on out there. And I think that's been kind of a guiding principle that's led me to try to figure out where some of these gaps might happen. So, for example, you might end up with a player, you know, like Seth Jones is the guy who I've 
ended up writing about quite a bit because Jones is obviously a guy, you know, anybody who's familiar with hockey will know that Jones has a huge reputation for being one of the best defensemen in the game. There was recently an article on The Athletic where kind of general managers were surveyed about who they thought the elite defensemen in the game were. They said that Jones unanimously was top five. And yet if you look at his analytics, you see that he's pretty unremarkable, particularly offensively, which wouldn't really match up with point totals or reputation or anything like that. So what I did was I kind of dug really deeply into those stats, including, you know, not just kind of, you know, his expected goals for and against and things like that, but also like micro stats, like transition numbers, uh, and also just sat down and watched a bunch of Steph Jones games. And I actually got some people who I know who have worked kind of in more of like the coaching and skills development area of hockey to weigh in on kind of things that they have noticed from watching Jones's game. And what I think we all kind of came to a bit of a consensus on is that there are things that Jones does out there that are extremely visible. He's a very confident skater. Uh, he carries the puck quite a bit, especially carrying it into the offensive zone. He shoots the puck a lot. You know, if you watch him in the defensive end, he's very active. He has a super active stick. He blocks passes. And yet, for some reason or another, these things don't necessarily add up to, you know, what you call analytical outcomes, which is, you know, generating good quality scoring chances for and especially preventing quality scoring chances against, which means that when you're watching the game, there might be things that he's doing or things that he's not doing that aren't super noticeable, but are nonetheless super impactful. So in the case of, you know, let's say we have a player who has really good defensive numbers, but you don't necessarily think of him as being a great defensive player. What he might be doing defensively could actually be happening outside of the defensive end. He might be, you know, uh, wasting time along the boards in the offensive zone, forechecking really hard, putting a lot of pressure on defenses that makes it impossible for them to break out the puck, which in turn makes the, his goaltender's job easier because that goal is not his end. So I think a big thing that, you know, has helped me out when I'm trying to watch games and kind of delineate these differences between what we would say is the analytics and eye test is really trying to narrow in on what's kind of making an actual big impact and what might be misleading, you know whether that big body check that you might associate with good defensive play actually led to the goalie having to face a somewhat harder shot because, you know, he stepped up and left his man vulnerable and, and things like that. You know, small things that may not catch your eye and you have to be a little bit more careful while watching. Right. Uh, but it's things like that. So it, just make sure you're trying to notice what's kind of driving those outcomes, especially when it comes to defensive play. You know, I like your last point there where you're talking about like the big hit. There's an iconic moment in my mind in the early years of Jets 2.0 where Mark Stewart came across the ice. I think Truba had pinched. Mark Stewart came and laid out uh, Joel Ward, I think. Uh, they were playing San Jose. And uh, the hit was big and crushing. It was awesome and everything. But he managed to push the puck forward to, I don't remember who the forward was. And uh, the forward was basically in on a breakaway and scored. And I, I think by the time the goal was scored, the camera hadn't even left, you know, Joel Ward picking himself up off the ice, right? Yeah. So it was one of those moments where you see the big hit, but it probably wasn't the best time to uh, go for that when your your partner had just uh, pinched in your last guy, right? And uh, so uh, now uh, saying that, what what are some of the, the things that you notice end up being where the, the eye test um, and the analytics disagree? I mean, the analytics, I was going to ask you too, like how efficient are they, how far they've come, and like sort of as far as where they're eventually going to maybe end up, what percentage of the you know, uh, the race, are we towards like perfect analytics that kind of tell us everything, but what, what are the main things that you find that, that people that only value the eye test are missing out that the analytics is actually picking up? I think you touched on a few of those things, but it feels like there's probably a few things that, uh, people key in on that, uh, that lead them astray from really measuring impact. 
Yeah, well, I think a big part of it, uh, especially when it comes to not only just analyzing the players who are on the team that you cheer for, who you watch night in, night out, but also when you're talking about, you know, your team acquiring players or you're talking about trophy races or, or trades or free agency or stuff like that, is you kind of have to figure out where your eye test ends and where points and hearsay and reputation are kind of encroaching in. Because I find that in a lot of cases, you'll find that people have very, very strictly held hard opinions about players who they actually haven't watched very much. Mm -hmm. And they'll think, you know, oh, these are eye test opinions. You know, this is based on the eye test. But it's based on somebody else's eye test. And that somebody else might be a fan of that other team. You know, you might be trusting the opinion, let's say, of a Jets fan who saw that hit by Mark Stewart and really loves that hit and said Mark Stewart's a great defensive player. So when your team's about to think about acquiring Mark Stewart, you're saying, oh, yeah, no, he's a great defensive player. And that might not actually be the case. I think that happens a lot with point totals, uh, especially where I think people might consider their analysis to be eye test based or, you know, based on things that are actually happening on the ice. But when you really dig into it, the core focus of their argument is actually on things like points, which are obviously pretty dependent on things like line mates and deployment and, and stuff like that. You know, sometimes even power play time. And in some cases, it might even be things like playing a lot when the net is empty and you're just racking up empty net points. And I think that that's something that has affected, I think, certain Jets players in particular. Uh, but in terms of kind of what the analytics can provide, uh, I think on offense there's some valuable insights to be had in terms of kind of which players are generating high-quality chances, you know, whether a player, you know, if they're scoring a bunch of points, they might be doing it because they're generating really good chances, you know, getting really good, you know, pucks in front and rebounds and stuff like that. Or sometimes they're doing it based entirely on, you know, skills like like individual finishing skill uh, or because they're passing. You know, these are insights that we can get from analytics, but especially on the defensive side of things, because I don't think the eye test is very well suited to, to measure defense. I know mine, I, I would say that mine is, is pretty flawed in that sense. And, and I think that kind of anybody's is, because when it comes down to defense, what is often the most important is the things that aren't happening. And our eyes don't pick up the things that aren't happening. You know, we're not picking up the slight change in positioning that keeps it forward to the outside or kind of a stick that's kind of eking into the lane that takes away a pass. These are things that are reflected by analytics because they prevent quality chances from facing your goalie. But your eye, especially if you're focusing on 10 different guys on the ice at one time and you're having a beer and you're talking to your buddies, you know, that's not a thing that's necessarily going to pick up. And the thing that the analytics can do is that they pick up everything. And then you have them in front of you and you can kind of look, and especially with these models that we have now that are actually able to a certain extent to isolate all of this stuff from things like, you know, context and whether a guy's playing at home or on the road, whether his team is up or down, who he's playing against, who he's playing with, all those kinds of things that can mess with things on top of those regular eye test distortions. I think that that's a really valuable insight. And I think defensive play is, is kind of the biggest one where we can really see areas where the eye test has maybe improved our understanding of what actually constitutes good defense and what might be misleading when you're watching the game. Hmm. That's a, you got some really, I really like a couple of things you said there, just about like the reputation sort of basing off what people said. I've, I find I run into that quite a bit and I try not to be guilty of it. And then what you said about defense too, where it's sort of uh, almost the stuff that, that doesn't happen. Uh, that's, that's a really, really interesting way of looking at it because yeah, it, when, if you're, you know, for for me as a casual fan, it, it's something that I haven't really thought of. You kind of just look at the things that you can actually uh, watch or make you cheer, like a big hit or a block shot or something, right? Those some of those things are a little bit more simply measured. But um, with uh, with saying that, though, I am kind of curious with uh, analytics. Where does that the time 
kind of cut off where they no longer are valuable. Because on the eye test side, I think of something like Bufflin when he was still playing um, in the first early years of the Jets. People would be he would pinch a lot, and people would say, "Oh, Buff pinches." Sometimes great, you know, great results. Sometimes not so great. But then when it wasn't great, then people would usually bitch and moan and say, "Oh, he pinches too much." But even in the later years, people would say, "Oh, he's Bufflin pinches," and I'm like, I don't think he's pinched up for like the last two years. What are we talking about here? So people's yeah. perception, right, has stayed uh, for too long. Now, when it comes to analytics, I feel like you could probably also, if you're looking over a player's whole career or something and then average it out, it's not really telling you exactly what their impact has been over the last, you know, half a season, 20 games, 10 games. No. So in for analytics, what's the best way to use them as far as uh, measuring uh, tool? Should it be like the last 10 games or the last 20? Like what, what's kind of uh, a thing that's going to keep them, keep them honest. So you're not just kind of, um, you know, running into the person 20 years after high school and saying, you know, you're the kid that picks your nose, right? Yeah. So I think in general, I mean, there are certain thresholds uh, that I think people have kind of found to be generally consistent. I think, especially when it comes to things like tracking, like micro stats, like your passing numbers, your transition numbers, I think that 30 games is usually kind of the the mark after which it's generally considered to level out. But I, I think in terms of what I use, at least when I'm kind of putting out like an overall idea of, of what a player does, I, I generally will use a weighted average of the past three years because in my own kind of studies, I found that that weighted average of kind of three seasons usually provides the best possible projection for what's coming next, which mm-hmm. isn't obviously going to be airtight because with hockey, you're always going to have players who move from team to team and have their results change or People respond to age differently or people get injuries. You know, it's not, they're not robots. You know, they have kind of different career trajectories. So not everything is, is going to be super predictive. But at the same time, I think that if you're kind of looking over a three-year sample and you're really emphasizing what happened this past season, that's probably the best way to go. So, yeah, I, averaging out over an entire career isn't going to tell you very much, uh, I, which is why I think timelines are something that I find pretty interesting because they kind of allow you to really map out how a player's developed especially when you can kind of break things down and see, you know, because there are certain players who, you know, their offensive game will stay pretty consistent, but you'll see their defensive game slowly decline. Uh, I think Mark Scheisley is an example of a guy who kind of fits that profile. You'll mm-hmm. see certain players who, you know, their offensive game kind of stagnates. And, you know, if you're somebody who's just kind of looking at the point sheet, as, you know, many eye test people, I think, can kind of have a little bit of a tendency to do. I know that I did when I was, you know, just watching the Penguins back a couple of years ago, getting annoyed because Pascal Dupuis wasn't putting up the points that I wanted him to. You know, you can kind of miss the fact that a player's defensive play is actually really improving, and that's why the point totals are going down. So I think that there's a lot of ways to look at it, but uh, I'd say definitely most recent years most important. But you do want to factor in kind of a player's history to make sure that you're not, you know, getting fooled by high shooting percentage or stuff like that. Right. That's good. I, I just want to make best my, my pick in the nose uh, comment about someone from high school. If anyone didn't catch that, it's the idea that people don't change 20 years later when obviously they have. And so you just kind of pin them pigeonhole them to what they used to be. But um, so I want to move on to talking about the actual uh, Winnipeg Jets. So the first one I'm going to talk to, I know that you've uh, tweeted a, a bunch about Hellebuck. Uh, um, he's obviously up for Vesna. I don't think they've voted yet on uh, today's what July 27th. Uh, I don't think it's uh, it's over yet as far as I know. Maybe I missed the missed that. But uh, yeah, what's what's your argument for him being the the obvious 
Vesna winner or or and and uh, what you said before sometimes we don't really know what's happening with the other players for someone that's actually looked into it those other candidates there um rask and and vasileski uh how close are they like we we think hellebuck's great but uh, most jets fans i guarantee don't watch uh you know 50 tampa bay games or you know 50 boston games or anything like that so uh compared to the other guys is is his case quite quite strong and and what why why would that be yeah, so I so I have uh, Hellebuck as my Vesna winner, uh, and I'd say by a pretty solid margin. Uh, I also, incidentally, I have him as my MVP, so uh, right. it would be a little weird if I didn't have him as my uh, as my Vesna winner, I guess. But uh, yeah, so uh, here's the thing. Usually, I would say if you're looking at things from an analytical perspective, usually the Vesna trophy kind of comes out, and, or the nominations come out, and you're grumbling because certain players are only there because they played behind a good team or because they got a lot of wins or stuff like that. And usually, you know, you get to kind of get your invective out, get mad, and then kind of call it from there. Uh, I think they actually did a pretty good job this year. So, I, I like, I, I personally, like, I wouldn't have had Vasilevsky on my ballot, but he was kind of in that top five range, so I, I wouldn't be too upset about that. And then Tuka Rask, I feel, in kind of a regular season, I think that he would have been a really good contender uh, if, if Hellebuck hadn't had the season that he had. So... I mean, if, you know, I, I can make the, the statistical case for Hellebuck. I'm sure that most of your listeners uh, definitely have the, the eye test case for Hellebuck in mind. But uh, I'll, I'll do my best. I, essentially, the argument would be that the Jets were one of the worst defensive teams in the NHL this year. Uh, Hellebuck played the most games. He faced the most shots. He faced the most kind of expected goals, which is like a proxy for the quality of shots that he faced. Uh, and, at this, and yet, he put up the best numbers of any goalie in terms of his stats relative to expectations, which for, for anybody who's not familiar uh, is kind of right now, and, and I would say probably, uh, you know, in principle, the best and maybe even only way that you could really fully isolate a goalie's play from stuff that's out of his control, like his team defense. You know, it's not Connor Hallibuck's fault that Kevin Shoveldayoff didn't decide to get any better defense from last summer. You know, he can't be blamed for the breakaways and the two-on-ones. He can only really be attributed to how he did on those plays. And he did great. He did the best in the NHL. Tukarask, I think, is a pretty close second. He played on the best defensive team in the NHL. And yet, even despite that, he did exceed expectations to an extremely high extent. Uh, he, he really was excellent. He wasn't just riding his team's success. Uh, and the big issue for him relative to Hellebuck is that he just played far fewer games because, you know, they the Bruins have... I think that they have a bit of a philosophy of resting the goalie for the playoffs. Well, obviously, that's not a luxury that the Jets really had. So, you know, Hellebuck did it in more games. The numbers that he accumulated were more impressive. And I think the situation that he was in defensively was so dire that I think it's a pretty clear-cut Desna win there. And, and in my mind, it should be an MVP win as well. Now now that we've uh, talked to, uh, switched over to the Jets talk, too, um, and and you said some glowing things about uh, Hellebuck. I think it's only fair that you you maybe talk about your your Winnipeg connection just for a second, so our listeners know that uh, you know you're you're on our side with this mostly. Although I know that you mentioned uh, Pittsburgh, but uh, what's your your connection to Winnipeg? Just a little aside here. Yeah. Uh, so my my girlfriend of uh, six years is uh, is from Winnipeg. Uh, her parents are diehard Jets fans who watch every game. They they still live there. I, I go back to visit them pretty regularly. Obviously, haven't. Uh, haven't this summer would have had the chance otherwise but uh on top of that you know aside from the jets i'm a, a big fan of, of a lot of the local bands there uh big weaker thans and propagandi and christian fellows fans so 
I have a lot of sympathies for Winnipeg, and I'm, I'm happy to see Hellebuck do well there because, you know, in, in terms of my Western Conference teams, I would not mind at all seeing the Jets do well. Well, that's awesome. It's nice to know that we have you on our, on our side, and hopefully more uh, Jets fans will follow you after this to know that you're you're one of the good guys. Um, okay, now moving along to some some more Jets uh, specific to players. Um, line A, I know a lot of times, well, all the time, he's always compared to Ovechkin because of the shot and the goal scoring, but I think when he came back this year, we saw a little different side of him. I think his defensive game started to round out a bit more. Obviously, he's getting some... Uh, a lot of us kind of believe that he's a great passer, but he, he kind of had... I think more assists kind of per game than he, he normally would have before just on, uh, on that. But what do you think like at, what is this year four for him? Um, who's a, a real true comparable for him? Is, is Ovechkin kind of what we look at as the, the model of what Line can turn into, or is there a better uh, winger likely that, um, uh, that fans would know that, uh, you know, that's an eight year vet or whatever that, that might be some better comparison of, of what we could expect from him eventually. Yeah, so I, I grappled with this one because, you know, it, it's a tricky question because he's such a unique player. Um, there's actually, on the uh, on the Evolving Hockey website, they've actually, uh, this summer, they've, they've had a chance to kind of add a lot of new features. And one of them is kind of a skater similarity where they take a whole compilation of the stats that they've accumulated and, and stuff like their age and, and things like that. And you can actually kind of enter in a player and see how he compares to, uh, to kind of historical players being kind of in the past 15 or, or 20 years or so. And I, I kind of plugged him in there as a, as a bit of a guidepost, expecting to see kind of Ovechkin or Semin or something like that. And the uh, the top option there was uh, Chris Stewart, which doesn't seem, you know, very right. So I think that going off from that and kind of I looked into it a little bit more, I don't really think there is a comparable for uh, for Patrick Line, to be perfectly honest with you. I, I think he's a he's an incredibly unique player. You know, he's I, I think he's he's very different from the player that Ovechkin was. Uh, especially at the beginning of his career, um, but I think continuing on now because you know he's he's not an exceptional, well, he, I, you know, saying he's not an exceptional defensive player I think is probably being a little bit generous to him. He he has been in, in at least the past three seasons a pretty hideous defensive player, uh, you know, near that bottom tier of the NHL. Um, but but an interesting thing about Liney, which wasn't the case for Ovechkin, is in terms of his. Uh, his quality shot generation. You know, Ovechkin was kind of, you know, firing shots from everywhere. He was generating rebounds. You know, he, he was really dangerous and kind of getting in close to the net and getting these really dangerous chances and obviously scoring on a lot of them. Whereas that's not necessarily as true for Line, who has interestingly kind of struggled in that area in terms of, you know, generating what in the staff community would be called expected goals. But, you know, basically those quality scoring chances but he's been able to consistently outperform those numbers because his shooting is just so good. And I think he's also maybe had the fortunate opportunity to play with some guys who are also pretty good shooters who are able to capitalize on their chances. So I think in some cases that leads to outcomes like we saw last year. Like I remember the conversation about Line A being that, you know, has he fallen off? Has he hit a wall? What happened to Patrick Line? A? And really what happened to Patrick Line a was that his on-ice goal numbers took a big hit. And so suddenly you know, things like the defensive play that previously wasn't as much of an issue kind of rose to the top of the conversation list. And then this year, I think those pucks started going in again. And so I think that that conversation kind of, you know, split a little bit. And I think there's also maybe an argument to be made that the the play of some guys that he plays with or some other Jets forwards defensively also kind of proportionately slipped, which I think took the heat off of them a little, a little bit. But this is all to say that, you know, line A, I think, is something that, we haven't seen in the NHL 
for, you know, as long as I've been watching at least. And I, I would struggle to really compare him to anybody. I, I think it really is a matter of just kind of enjoying the, the clear goal-scoring talent that he has and just trying to put him in a position where the areas of his game that aren't as strong aren't going to hurt the Jets and that they can take advantage of his tremendous shot. Well, I, I really like that answer because I was I conclude the same thing that I didn't think he's kind of like the Dustin Bufflin of forwards. It's like nobody else yeah. really like him. Is quite a unique uh, player. It's interesting to have both of them together for a couple of years. Um, uh, yeah. And just talking about the the perception too. I think this last year, the for myself and I'm sure a lot of others, the perception of his defense was that it improved because it looked like he was working a lot more, even though it might have been like just a, you know, hamster on a wheel, but it felt like he was putting in in effort, even though I don't think it made as big of a bump as we would have liked. But I think people like to see the, the hard work being the Winnipeggers, the blue collar town that it is. So, um, so moving along here. Um, so two players that often get compared uh, on the Jets is Connor and Ehlers. The fan base needs something to fight about. So usually people take sides between those two. I've heard Ehlers called, by many people, uh, the Jets' best player. Um, and then some people just cannot get enough of Connor. They should just give him all the money. He's better than Liney. I've, I've heard all the kind of arguments. What are some of the pros and cons of those two players? They, they seem a lot more different than I think people think when they're comparing the two. They don't really seem uh, alike. One has kind of that shooting talent. The other one has, you know, I guess the, the zone entry talent. Um, but what are the, the sort of things that people... That, that you notice that are the real kind of highlights of each one of them and some of the lowlights. I know the, that you've uh, tweeted a lot about the defensive game for Kyle Connor. So I'm wondering if you could speak to, to those two players of, of what you see that is their high and low sides. Yeah, for sure. So I, I agree with you that they're not, that despite the kind of superficial similarities they have just in terms of their ages, the position they play, obviously both playing for the Jets, you know, I, I think that those are obviously things they have in common, but there are some pretty significant differences between them. Uh, for Ehlers, at least, I don't know if he is quite as, I, I would say, kind of exceptional as, as maybe the analytics indicated that he was a couple of years ago. I think that maybe there's elements of his game, particularly on the defensive side, that have slipped a little bit, which I know is it's not necessarily his job, but I think his, his quality chance generation is also, I think, taken a little bit of a hit as time has gone on, which is possibly an area of concern but i think considering all the changes that have happened to the jets i don't think it's something to really panic about too much i think he, i mean he's still profiled as a very effective player you know i'd say right now in in the role that he's in i'd say probably a, a, a very strong top six forward obviously you mentioned kind of he has a, he's a very quick player he's very good at carrying the puck in the zone if i'm the jets you know if i've heard rumors about him being potentially available for a defenseman and stuff like that. You know, I think it would have to be a pretty high caliber of defenseman to uh, to make Nikolai Ehlers worth moving because, I mean, he just has so much skill. I think his, his shot is also something that I don't necessarily hear about much, just kind of a neutral fan. But uh, his, his shot, his finishing talent is, is pretty exceptional. Uh, he scores at an extremely high rate. Uh, and as you said, his passing is also really great. You know, he, he I think he scored goals at an elite rate at even strength this year. Uh, and then made assists at the same rate, uh, primary assists. Um, as, for, as for Connor, I think Connor is, is kind of that ultimate example of a guy who the analytics just really aren't kind to in large part because of his defensive game. Uh, I, I think there are some areas where you can excuse an extremely talented forward for not necessarily being able to match his effort on, on defense. But uh, I think Connor is a guy in particular who, especially when 
those shots aren't necessarily going in, which to be fair, they, they rarely don't go in, but mm-hmm. you know, when they don't go in, I think it kind of exposes the, the real demerits of the type, the type of game that he plays. You know, he, he has an exceptional shot. You know, he's right up there in terms of his goals, right up there in terms of his shooting. But I think his defensive play, especially kind of in the past three years, if you look at it as a timeline, you know, he was one of the worst defensive players in the league this year. I'd say there's probably a pretty good case that he was a bottom three defensive player in the league. And, and you know, that's not super great company to be in, especially considering the issues that the Jets have when it comes to defending. You know, they have enough problems on their blue line. You really want to have your forwards kind of buying in and, and making sure to cover those errors. And I don't think that's something that necessarily he's, he's really suited for doing. So... Again, you know, the goal-scoring talent, obviously that's something that you have to pay for. That's something that's pretty difficult to find, and, and he certainly has it. But in terms of if, if I'm kind of comparing those two and kind of evaluating who I would be more interested in keeping, especially if we're talking about acquiring a proper top defenseman, you know, I think I would be quicker to move on or at least consider moving on from a guy like Connor who really kind of hurts his team on the defensive side you know, almost as much or, or possibly even more than he benefits them on the offensive side of things. Which which sounds really insane to think because of we know what he does offensively. So now can you translate that back into eye test language? What are some of the things that he does defensively? Like, again, as fans, if we're watching Kyle Connor and, and we hear people say that he's bad defensively, and I, I don't disagree with that, I just don't realize to what extent, especially when you say, and people, other people have said, it's almost negates his positive offensive impact. You go, geez, he must be like, the worst in the league. And then you just said he was like bottom three. So I guess that lines up, right? The math. But what are some of the things that he's actually doing that are counting so heavily against uh, him uh, on that end? You know, I test wise, what are, what are the, the negative, the negative things? I guess. Yeah. So I, so that, that's a tough question for, for me to answer just because I think that a lot of the answer to that would come from kind of a very deep dive that would involve kind of watching a lot of tape, which, you know, I, I watched a fair amount of Jets games last season, but kind of more of a just a casually, you know, because they're, they're kind of, it was fun to watch Hollabuck and, and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, just saying kind of other players who are in kind of a similar situation, I think Patrick Kane is actually pretty good comparable, uh, I think, for better or for worse in terms of kind of, you know, having that offensive impact and maybe having it mitigated a little bit by poor defensive play. You know, Patrick Kane was the worst defensive forward in the league this year. And from people who I know who have kind of took, taken deep dives into his game and kind of identified areas of his defensive game that, that might be an issue, I think a lot of it is the effort put in in the defensive zone, uh, especially when it comes to joining battles or, or being really attentive at the point or, or things like that. And it might even be something as simple as struggling to kind of get the puck out of the zone. Uh, and sometimes that may not necessarily correlate with things that we would generally consider to be defensive play, like, you know, takeaways and stuff like that. But there are certain players where, you know, whether it's positioning or, you know, committing in the defensive zone, you know, there, there are issues that they have where they might still be able to accumulate things like takeaways because as soon as the puck's kind of in that vulnerable position, suddenly, you know, they can turn it in offense. They get excited that they can turn things around offensively. So, you know, like any good, you know, skilled beer league player, they immediately flew in and steal that puck and take it the other way. So mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't be able to give you a, a full answer on his game specifically without really being able to kind of take the time and, and dive into the minutia of his game. But uh, at least with similar players, that's the kind of thing that, that tends to really hurt wingers. Right. 
Okay, uh, I'm going to end on this question. I was going to ask you something about Maurice, but I'm going to leave that one uh, for now. We've talked about Paul Maurice many times on the on the podcast enough, but I'm going to uh, end off on this one. Who is the Winnipeg Jets' best player? And you're not allowed to say Hellebuck, and I know some people will be furious about that, and I, I don't think the Josh Morrissey stands will, will come for us because I, I think likely everybody's going to agree if you're talking about a skater. It's going to be one of the forwards, uh, but just a yeah. little kind of background. Like you mentioned, Shifley, his game has kind of dropped off. He was a you know point-to-game player uh, just production-wise uh, for a while. Blake Wheeler you know, had two 91-point seasons. Those weren't even like necessarily his best you know, playing seasons. I think it was the season before he had the 91, like analytically that showed, showed a little better for him. So he's kind of on that slide. We talked about Ehlers and Line and Connor and sort of their um, defensive woes, but also how they're all different. But if uh, you're kind of looking at, you know, you, you take all the numbers, all the impact, everything, you put it into a machine uh, today uh, off after four months off, uh, who would you say is the Jets? I, I, and I'm not even sure how to word the most impactful player or the best player or or whatnot. But uh, yeah, I guess wh- whichever one of those you want to choose, which which player is the Jets' best player, and maybe uh, maybe give give us a, just one or two points of of why you, you would conclude that. Yeah. So you know, I, I like like you mentioned, kind of Blake Wheeler is a guy who puts up the big point totals, but I, I think it's interesting that his most productive seasons have kind of come as his even strength impact in terms of analytics has fallen off. Uh, you know, like I, like I kind of hinted at before, he scores a lot of points off empty nets and in three-on-three three or four-on-four four kind of situations where his passing skills are kind of more on display. So I, I'm not going to say Wheeler. Uh, I, I honestly would still have to go with Mark Shifley. You know, I mentioned that his defensive game has really fallen off, and, and it has. He was right down there with, with Kyle Connor in terms of his, his issues defensively, which I think is, is surprising to a lot of people because I think that when they think of Mark Shifley, they think about a guy who, uh, you know, is, is super cerebral. You know, we all see the videos where he's like watching hockey and he's talking about it and, you know, very lucid about it. So I think the idea that he's somebody who's really start, struggled with defensive play is, I think, surprising to some people. But, I mean, that's that's the impact that he's had on the ice, at least uh, this year. And I think last year he also started to have some issues. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, we talked about honor and, you know, how maybe his impact offensively is being mitigated by his uh, impact defensively. You know, there are still players who are so impactful offensively that really, at the end of the day, it's not as much of an issue. And I think that Mark Shifley is one of those guys who, you know, at the end of the day, what he's able to do offensively, you know, his ability to, to not only kind of drive goals going in, but also drive those scoring chances you know, he, he has a pretty broad skill set, even if necessary, it doesn't necessarily always lead to the most gaudy point totals. You know, he's a gifted playmaker. He has a great shot. He's always playing, you know, those first-line minutes. He's playing the really tough competition, and he still manages to kind of win those matchups in terms of generating offense. Uh, and I think that, especially considering the Jets kind of have some issues when it comes to consistently managing to generate those great scoring chances at even strength, I think Mark, Mark Shifley is kind of a player who is still able to do that you know, year after year without too many issues, uh, whereas that might not be the case for some Jets who I think have maybe diminished in that sense since that uh, 2018 Cup run. So, Shifley's still my guy in that case. Uh, it would be nice uh, for both him and for the Jets, and I guess for Jets fans as well, if, if he can kind of, you know, maybe recommit to the defense a little bit uh, and, and balance out his game once more and kind of put them in a better position overall. But, uh, I mean, his impact offensively is so strong that I don't think that you could really go any other way. Right. 
I like it. That's good. Um, I do actually, I thought of uh, one more little question here I'm going to throw in. I was looking on Twitter today and just seeing what yeah. some Jets fans, uh, we have a friend of the show, Tony, that uh, we mentioned every third or fourth episode that uh, listens. And he had this wild suggestion. I just thought I'd throw it out there of moving Ehlers to center. I've never thought of this before. I don't know what the, the rationale behind it was, but it gave me pause and thought, what would that look like? Uh, how could that change things off the top of your head? What's uh what what do you think is uh what what do you get out of that idea? Does it just seem like uh just throwing darts at a wall, seeing if anything sticks, or is it kind of uh yeah just is it is there potential in that? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, hmm, I like I, I would say my instinct on that because I mean I, I'm from Halifax. I, I I will admit that I left Halifax before he played some Moosehead, so I can't remember off the top of my head whether they ever pushed him to center like they did your way. Yeah. Uh, but I, I will say my instinct is that if the Jets have an issue at their second-line center, which they obviously do considering that Cody Eakin is the guy who's playing there right now, no offense to the local boy, but I don't think, you know, unless you're the Detroit Red Wings, you don't really have an excuse to play Cody Eakin at your second-line center. Right. Uh, I, I, honestly, I, I feel, and this is kind of reflected based on Jets fans I've talked to, I think I've seen actually uh, uh, Garrett say the same thing. You know, if you have Andrew Cobb, you know, if he plays center, yeah. you just put him on your second line. That's, that's kind of your issue solved there. I feel like, especially at this point in Ehlers' career, you know, you've seen certain areas where kind of wingers have moved in the center. I know that the Habs obviously have a reputation for doing it with uh, with Jerwan and with uh, with Domi. You know, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. I don't know whether I have the confidence in Ehlers' defensive game to, to want to put him in the center. Um, and, and on top of that, I think because Ehlers, like a special strength of Ehlers' game is his speed, I wonder whether he might be underutilized in terms of speed if he wasn't didn't have the opportunity to play the wing and kind of you know make those more ambitious plays. Right. So yeah, yeah I, I you know I'd say go for cop or or maybe try to find a, a natural second line center. But uh, I, I think the Jets honestly theoretically have have an internal option there that uh, that they could probably slide into place pretty well without having to pull out all the stops like that. Yeah, and you're and the internal option you're obviously you're speaking about cop, not necessarily Blake Wheeler, which I think is one of the reasons why people would look at that. The Ehlers idea is because Blake Wheeler has moved to center before, so I think you know people basically open to anything because you know in some ways, and I, I don't I don't want to get into a Maurice thing, but you know that the coach is kind of closed off to certain ideas. So I, I don't think if everyone's healthy that cop is ever a second line center, even if he was the best option because. Maurice sees him as a defensive kind of checking third line kind of guy, right? So I don't think he's yeah. he's ever graduating out of that unless he can, you know, score 20, 20 goals a season or something, right? And yeah, that's just, fair. I mean, you know, I mean, that's the thing, right? It's, I mean, he he is an exceptional defensive player. He's probably the Jets' best defensive forward right now. Right. Um, but I mean, this year, I think that you know, just kind of looking over Cup's numbers right now, I, I would imagine that you're. He, he was ex- like exclusively focused on defense this year, probably to compensate for some of the issues that were going on around the rest of the forward group. But in the past, I mean, he's had pretty strong offensive impacts, which kind of surprised me a little bit and would surprise most people who aren't as familiar with the Jets depth players. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'd say give it a shot, you know, over Cody Eakin, certainly, but <laughs> that will probably uh, fall on some deaf ears. So. Yep, it definitely will. So, anyhow, uh, I want to give you a final chance here just to kind of plug uh, any more of your work one more time, just so people know where to find you 
And then, uh, yeah, I'll just thank you for definitely taking the time and in, enlightening us. I think there's some some really good uh, stuff that you said that I have never heard before, even considering some of the analytical minds that I've uh, managed to interview or, or listen to. So I, I, I thank you for, for sharing all that. But uh, anyhow, where can people find you? Yeah, so uh, like I said, uh, Jay Fresh Hockey is the, the Twitter handle. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty active on there. Uh, I, was, I was insanely active during quarantine. Now that games are back, I might be too busy watching those to, to be quite as active, but uh, we'll still be posting things as they happen. Uh, I will be posting hockey visualizations uh, of, of analytics that hopefully make things a little bit clearer, and you can uh, get access to those uh, by subscribing to my Patreon, which is under the same name, J Fresh Hockey, uh, as well as if you were interested in some of the things that I was saying, especially about kind of the gaps between the eye test and the analytics on certain players, uh, and you're kind of interested in, in taking a deeper look into that, uh, you can check out my Substack page, uh, my blog there, which is uh, JFresh Hockey. Uh, it's either jfreshhockey.substack.com or jfresh.substack.com. But if you Google it, you'll find it no matter what. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much got me covered. All right. Awesome. Well, Jack, thanks again. Really appreciate you taking the time. It was uh, fun to, to listen. And uh, thanks for enlightening us on a few more things for helping us watch hockey and uh, know a little bit more about our own team, too. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. I'm Kurt Kielbach, and thank you for listening to the Jet-Centric Broadcast.